you want to flip in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, we're going to take a look at some verses there in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, right? So this, of course, is a letter written by Peter. Um, 1st, 2nd, 3rd Peter are all letters from Peter to others, whether it's a church or an individual. And it's important, I think, when you're reading through a book that was, uh, or a letter, right, they became books later, but letters written by a specific person, it's important to kind of understand who the person was. So Peter, of course, is one of the original 12 disciples. He is the one whom Jesus himself says, on this rock I will build my church, right? His name is Simon. Christ changes his name to Peter, meaning rock. Uh, he's also in scripture called Simon Peter at points, right? Um, he's a, he's at least 30 years old. We know that because he owns his own fishing business and he's married. Uh, so he's at least 30 years old when Jesus calls him. He's probably slightly older than that, but he's at least 30 years old. And he is one impulsive son of a gun. He's angry. He's impulsive. He's passion and energy. And how many times did Jesus have to just smack him across the face and be like, take a chill pill here, Peter. The Gospel of Mark, which is not written by Peter, but is written based off of Peter's account, includes the words immediately, or he got up and did this, far more than the other three Gospels combined. Because in Peter's mind, today, if Peter lived today, he would be like, oh, this kid's got ADHD. That's what we'd say. And so you might go, the Gospel of Luke says he went up eventually. And Peter's like, no, he went up immediately. Because for poor Peter, time is kind of irrelevant. He's like, no, this happened immediately. Peter's also the one, right, we know who Christ says, get thee behind me, Satan, too. He's also the one who denies Jesus three times. He is the one, and, I, and mark this, and I love this, and I've preached sermons on this before, that Jesus goes personally to bring back. He goes personally to go get him. When Peter said, I'm done, he won't want me. I've denied him, I'm done. He doesn't want me anymore. Jesus shows up at his place of work, gives him the greatest day he's ever had at fishing, and then says, I want you, come back. Peter, if you're in the Catholic world, is considered the first pope, if you will. The pope still claim generally a line of Peter at times. Um, he's, we think of Paul as the head of the church. That wasn't quite the case. It was Peter who was the head. Paul did a lot. I'm not trying to downplay what Paul did. Two-thirds of, of your New Testament is written by Paul. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to be like, Paul, we could throw him out. But Peter is just as influential. And perhaps the greatest thing Peter ever did was have a vision of bacon falling onto a, onto a cloak and God telling him he was allowed to eat that now. That might be his greatest accomplishment. Go read that story in Acts. It's where it's where it's not actually bacon, but it's pig and other unclean animals and such. And, and God says, you can eat this stuff now, right? But either way. So that's who's writing this. Peter is a man who has experienced the lowest of lows, right? We talk about Paul's conversion, right? From Saul to Paul and how incredible that is. Peter jumped on at the beginning messed up horribly and fell off. You and I are far more like Peter than we're like Paul. I doubt that anybody in this room has ever been like, I hate Christians and I'm going to, I'm going to, well, my Christianity dead. And then God got a hold of you. 
Most of us are far more like Peter. We jump on, we mess up, and we get off. He's experienced the lowest of lows. He's also experienced the highest of highs. He's one of the few that witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. He is this incredible person in Scripture. And he's writing this letter. So that's just a little brief overview of who Paul is, of his personality, of all that kind of stuff, because it does color how he writes and what he's trying to say. And as we talk about hope today, I think he really understands what hope is because he was hopeless and Jesus came and gave him hope. But let's read it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. It reads like this. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of the lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. I want to point out before we jump into this, he begins this section of scripture by talking about hope, takes a small break, and ends it with hope, which is one of the reasons that really this whole thing should be colored through the lens of hope. Number one on your note sheets there, if you grabbed a bulletin, you've got a note sheet. Number one, therefore, therefore, one of the only things I remember from my days in college was when my professor looked at me and said, if you see a therefore in scripture, the first thing you should ask yourself is, what's it there for? So let's ask ourselves, what's the therefore therefore? In the preceding verses, we read a couple of things. First off, he says that the mystery of grace is made known to you. The mystery of grace is made known. Now, he is not saying that you and I, or them, or these people back then, right, will understand grace, but that the mystery is made known to us. Grace is made known to you. You obtain this inheritance from God, right? This incredible inheritance. It's not money, it's not gold, it's not land, it's not oil, it's not gas rights, it's not whatever. It's an inheritance to spend eternity in heaven. And lastly, he says in, that, in the preceding verses, you are distressed by various trials. He does not say you're distressed by various temptations. That's a different thing. All of us in here are walking through various trials in our life or listening at home or listen on a podcast or whatever, right? We are all walking through various trials in this life. You can replace trials with tribulations if you'd like to, that word. We're all walking through them. So he says, because of these three things, because the mystery of grace is made known to you, salvation, because you have obtained this inheritance, salvation, and because you're walking through trials, do 
these things. Think like this. It's important to understand because the fact of the matter is none of this applies if you have not understood the mystery of grace and you have not obtained an inheritance. None of it matters what we're going to talk about today if those two things aren't true. And we're all going through trials. But we can walk through our trials because of those two things and what he's going to talk about here. So it's important to understand. So whenever you're walking through a Bible study or something like that and you see the word therefore, it happens a lot. Paul loves to use it. Ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore? And remind yourself of what was previously written. Number two on your note sheets, conduct yourselves. Conduct yourselves. So he gives three things here in, the next, in these verses of actual conduct, how to conduct yourself. He starts with prepare your minds for action. I want to make this clear. These things are not things you can just sit around and they'll happen. You have to actually do them. So prepare your minds for action. Know his word. Know him. And we're going to talk about when we get down to let's apply it, how that actually applies to our lives and stuff like that. I'm not telling you you can't watch sports or listen to music or whatever and stuff like that. That's right. I'm not telling you you must only put in Christian stuff 24-7. I am telling you what's the ratio, and if it's off, you need to fix it. Because what you put in is who you are and what you become. And you can only hide it for so long. So if you are preparing your minds with sports, and there's nothing wrong with sports. I watched nine innings of baseball yesterday. The Phillies won seven to two. It was a great night. I also spent some time in God's word yesterday. I was studying this passage to get really ready for today, reminding myself of all the stuff I felt God wanted us to talk about. Prepare your mind. We talk about, and we're not going to spend a lot of time today, but right, the, uh, the armor of God and the helmet of salvation because salvation protects your mind. If Satan can get your mind, he has you. If he can get you to think certain things, and I'm not just talking about sin, if he can get you to be down and depressed and beat up and just exhausted in your mind, he has you right where he wants you. You must prepare your mind for the battle that's ahead. Secondly, keep sober in spirit. Now, I've heard a lot of people use this passage before to be like, see, the Bible says you shouldn't get drunk. It does, but it says that elsewhere. That's not what this is really talking about. This goes into preparing your mind. Keep your spirit sober as well. Don't let it be drunk. Don't let it be bogged down or confused. Don't let it be overcome by things. Protect your spirit. Keep it sober. Keep it in the right path, on the right way. Now, I'm not pretending that alcohol doesn't play a role in that, or drugs, or sports, or music, or TV, or whatever, right? We all have these um, uh, um, vices that we turn to, or addictions that we have and such, and all of them make our spirit drunk. And Peter is saying, no, no, no. Keep your mind prepared. Keep your spirit sober, ready to go. We'll talk about hope in a little bit. Um, 
So I'm going to, that's why it's not underneath conduct yourself. So I'm going to skip down to be holy. Keep yourself holy. This is about sin. Don't sin. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and say, church, I have now gone four years and two months without sinning. It's not true. I probably haven't gone 24 hours without sinning. Neither have you guys. Let's all get on the boat together. It's all right. What's your mindset? Right? We talked about it this morning with the psalm that we read. Is your mindset when you sin, I have sinned against God, I must repent, it makes you weep? Or is your mindset, all right, I sinned, but you know what? Grace has me. I'm good. It doesn't matter. It does matter. It doesn't matter for your salvation, but it matters for where you are right now. And God says, be holy. Be different from the people around you. The incredible thing is, salvation is the only reason we can be holy. The law didn't work to make people holy. Only Christ on the cross did that. So people who are unbelievers, they don't have that ability to be holy. They also don't have the ability to prepare their minds correctly or to keep sober in spirit. All this plays back into your salvation. Number three on your note sheets, let's talk about hope. Fix your hope. Right there in verse 13, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So let's talk about hope here this morning, right? Because it's the crux of this whole thing. If you don't have any hope, you're not going to be able to prepare your mind. If you don't have any hope, you're not going to keep sober in spirit. If you don't have hope, you won't be holy. So the first thing is, it says to fix your hope. That means it's a choice. What you put your hope in is your choice. I have a lot of things in my life I could put my hope in. I'm putting my hope in the fact that there's 110 games left in the baseball season and the Phillies will make the playoffs. It probably won't happen. My hope will be lost, but that's all right. I'm going to put my hope in that when I get in my car to go pick up lunch for my family this afternoon after church and I turn that key, it's going to turn on. I've put my hope in my parents. I'm putting my hope in the fact that I want to see my wife in just about uh, 24 plus another 10, like 34-ish hours from now. Right? All of that could let me down. All of it. Maddie's plane could get delayed. She doesn't come home until Tuesday, right? My dad and my mom are incredible people. They have let me down. I've let them down too, so it's all right. Choose wisely what you put your hope in. We were going to sing in Christ alone this morning, and then I couldn't find the chord sheet this morning, and I didn't have time to print it out. But I love the opening line to that song, in Christ alone, my hope is found. It's not found. Here's the thing. He doesn't say, the author of that song didn't say, in Christ with a few other things that are really good. It's just, in Christ alone, my hope is found. Choose where you put your hope. We've talked about how love is a choice. Hope is as well. Choose what you put your hope in and choose wisely. 
Secondly, your hope is based upon what the cross is and what happened at the cross. We did communion this morning, and I can't impress upon you guys and myself enough the fact of what that represents. Consider, for some 4,000 odd years, there was no hope. Before the fall of man, there wasn't need for hope. Everything was perfect. Once Adam and Eve sinned, there was no hope until Christ. You had a hope of looking forward to it. Boy, I like our version of hope. We look back to it knowing it already happened and we're covered. Hope is built upon the cross, upon what Jesus did there. It's why I vote in every election, but it does not matter who's sitting as the president right now or in two years. It does not matter who wins the governor's election in Pennsylvania in November. It does not matter who does this or that. It doesn't matter who's the leader of any other country. Why? My hope is not built on government. It's not built on men and women. It's built on the cross. Now, I'm also not saying we shouldn't just, we should just accept things lying down blindly and stuff like that. What I am saying, though, is where do you put your hope? And if I may be so bold and maybe tick off some people, far too many of us put our hope in one Donald Trump. We loved him. Thought he was the greatest thing in the world. Jesus is. I'm not saying not to vote. I'm not saying not to vote on what you believe in and stuff like that. I am saying if your hope for a better country is these coming elections, are these coming elections, your hope is worthless. Your hope for a better country is what Christ did on the cross. Your hope for a better world is what Christ did on the cross that day. Where do you place your hope? The last thing about hope is you're bought by the blood of Christ. I have hope because I was bought with the greatest price ever. This was probably three years ago now. For the first time in my life, I saw more than like $1,000 in cash. First off, it was like 15, 20 grand. And it's only like that much. It's not that big a stack of money. But also, I was amazed at that much money. You can't buy a car right now for 15 grand. It's the most amount of money I've ever seen in one, in one thing. You and I were worth the blood of God. How much more are you and I worth than that? I have hope because the person who bought me gave up everything for me and for you. So let's wrap it up. Let's apply this to our lives and stuff like that. I'm not going to stand up here and deny that we live in a hopeless world. We do. Spoiler alert for the end of the book. This world is doomed. The Bible says God destroys Heaven and earth creates completely new ones, devoid of any marring of sin. This world is doomed. 
I'm not going to deny that. I'm not going to deny that for a lot of people, either listening or right here, right now, that you're wondering, where the heck am I going to pay the electric bill? I'm not denying that you might be going, where am I going to get lunch? I'm not denying that there are things in this world that are hopeless. I am saying you need to put your hope in the right one. It doesn't always fix all of those issues. Sometimes it does, but it doesn't always what it does do is place you in the right spot. So how do we get there? How do we fix our hope and be sober-minded and all that kind of stuff? To, pract- uh, um, to practice to do, you must know. To know, you must study. And to study, you got to know where you're going. I had a number of people when Maddie and I got engaged and then um, married fairly quickly that were like, wow, you guys got married really quickly. Maddie and I dated over two times dating a total of like seven months before we were married. Now, it's not quite as bad as when my dad came home from his first date with his, my now stepmom, with, with mom, walked in the door and told me and my three siblings, quote, I'm gonna marry that woman. What? And then they were married like 10 months later or something. But they were also much older and had lived some life, right? I had people ask me, they're like, isn't it a bit quick? Here's the big difference. Maddie and I had known each other for about, at that time, 10 years. And been best friends for six or seven of those years. We hadn't dated, but we knew each other really well. We had spent about as much time together as you can. We had talked about a lot of deep, big topics and stuff like that. I knew who she was. Now, I've learned certain things since then, as you do when you get married. Anybody who's been married in here goes, yeah, I learned some stuff about my spouse. (laughs) Right, you learn certain things because you can't learn everything. But I knew her because I had spent time with her. This all goes back to this, spend time with God. Spend time with him. You're not going to put your hope in him unless you know him. And I don't mean just salvation. I mean you have to know him. How does he think? How does he act? How does he want you to think? How does he speak? I could be in a crowded room. And I know where Maddie is because I understand her voice. Better yet, I don't even know if you could still do it. But when we were kids, me and my siblings were kids, we could be across the Walmart and we hear dad's whistle. We knew it. And it was time to, there was a set meeting place and we knew that was where to go. Don't, you put down whatever you're doing and you go. Because I knew Know him. You're not going to have hope in him unless you know him. I'm not telling you you've got to spend hours every day. Some days my devotions are five minutes. God and I spend five minutes together in the morning and he goes, okay. We'll talk later today and I'll go, all right, God. And I start the rest of my day. Some days it's an hour and I'm like, "Are, are we good, God? And he goes, no, I need a little more time. Okay. You don't have to say, well, I spend an hour. Nobody in here is more holy because they spend this amount of time with God than somebody else. It's not the way it works. 
I am saying spend the time with him. Intentional time with him. I also want to point this out. I use devotionals. I love devotionals, especially ones written by um, like Charles Stanley or, or uh, uh, David Jeremiah, a few of the people like that. I really like them. Devotionals, no matter how great they are, are not scripture. They might have verses in them, and they probably should. If you're reading a devotional and it doesn't put scripture in there, you should stop reading that devotional. Um, PSA for you guys. But devotionals are not scripture. You must spend time in this book. That's how you get to know him. That's how you learn to recognize the still small voice. That's how you learn to recognize who God is. And that's who you put your hope in then. The other thing I want to point out, and I saw this the other day, and we're closing up shop here. If you don't put your hope in God in the good times, you're not going to do it in the bad times. If you don't go, hey, I've got an extra thousand bucks in my bank account this month, right? You, you, God was good this month, or this or that, right? If you don't go, thank you, God, my hope is in you, not in this money, then when you don't have that money, you still won't have hope in God. Your hope will still be in the money, it just won't be there anymore. We as Christians love to go, well, the times are pretty good, we'll just, we're just going to keep living. Mm-mm. Thank you, God, for the blessings he bestows upon you. Thank him for the blessings he bestows. But don't put your hope in blessings. Put it in the one who is the blesser. Put it in the one who gives and takes away. Because, spoiler alert, if you keep putting your hope in the blessing, boy, those blessings disappear really quick until you start putting your hope back in the one who gives the blessings. So my challenge to you guys this week is not to spend five minutes every day in Scripture. It's not, nope, I'm not going to tell you to do that. My challenge for you this week is each day spend the amount of time God wants you to spend with him. Start by asking him, all right, God, how long are we going to go today? He might not give you a time. In fact, he probably won't go. Give me five minutes. What happens is though you start and when you finish, that's when he wants you to be finished. Spend time with him this week. Because we live in a hopeless world. You and I have hope, at least should. And boy, we can deliver that hope to others. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you... you you give us hope, that we can place our hope and our faith and trust in you. That yes, there are so many good things in this world, but they will all let us down at some point, but you never do. I pray, Father, that, as we, that you would help us to fix our hope on you, which allows us to, keep, uh, to prepare our minds to keep sober in spirit, to be holy. I pray that you would help us to make the choice to fix our hope eternally on you. Not just for my eternal soul. I've already done that. I did that the day of salvation. But to place my hope in you for the next moment of each and every day. Father, give us a great week. And it's in the name of your son that we pray, amen and amen.